Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you take them and open to the book of Zechariah, chapter 9? The verses are printed in the bulletin, but if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to open to it. Zechariah is the second to last book in the Old Testament. So there is Zechariah, and there is Malachi, and then there is Matthew. Zechariah chapter 9. We're going to begin today a short break from the book of 1 Timothy, which we've been going through all fall. We're going to do five weeks now as we are preparing ourselves for Christmas and thinking about Christmas. We're going to focus for five weeks on preparing our hearts for Christmas as well. As there is so much a sense of joy and anticipation in this season, we're going to go back into the Old Testament and look at Jesus and his glory as it is foretold by us by the prophets. We all know that there are many prophecies of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. God spoke through the prophets and he would tell his people as he was progressively revealing his plan to them. He would give them these little uh, encouragements by way of pointing them to Christ. I think one of the most well-known and familiar of those is here in Zechariah 9, Nine. This is, these are words you will recognize. Even if you haven't read them in Zechariah, you've read them in Matthew and you've read them in John. This is a prophecy that points us to Christ. And so we will be in the Old Testament prophets for the next few weeks, looking at Christ as he's foretold in the Old Testament, pointing us, uh, helping us to prepare ourselves for Christmas. So if you're able, would you join me today in standing for the reading of God's word? Zechariah chapter 9, starting in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is the reading of God's word. May he write its eternal truths on our hearts. Let's pray one more time. Father, we want to commit this time of reading your word and learning from it to you. This is your word that you have inspired. And so we ask now that you will apply it to our hearts. That you will use it to encourage us that you will use it to teach and exhort us, to instruct us in the ways of Christ, that you may, even now, as we read and speak and listen, that you will be about your business of transforming us into the image of our Savior. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it seems to me that... There's basically two types of people in the world. There are those people who listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving, and there are those mature and godly people who who wait until after the holidays to begin listening to their Christmas music. And, And that's not entirely true because I myself love Christmas music and am prone to picking Christmas hymns to sing all year round. Indeed, the the very essence of of preparing ourselves for Christmas is that this is a season of anticipation. That that it's a season of looking forward to what is to come, and so it doesn't hurt to begin anticipating early, to begin looking forward 
to that day on Christmas. And of course, for the kids who are anticipating the event itself that day, the, the big pile of presents, perhaps, that we anticipate under the tree. But we remember there is much more that we anticipate. Christmas is about looking forward to Christ, to the coming of Christ. In fact, one of the things we do at Christmas, even when we sing some of the songs we sing, is that we take ourselves and we put ourselves back into the position of Old Testament saints who are looking forward to the birth of Christ. They were looking forward historically. Have you ever thought that it's a little funny that we sing some of these songs that are looking forward to the birth of Christ when the birth of Christ was 2,000 years ago and yet we sing, Come thou long expected Jesus. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Well, he did come, and and he has begun his work of ransoming captive Israel. He did that 2,000 years ago. And yet, part of Christmas is is we put ourselves back in their shoes, and, and we remember that sense of anticipation when the king would come, when Jesus Christ himself would be born. But it's not simply this historical exercise that we do of, of sort of trying to, to be historically sympathetic. There's also a, a reality for us, is there not? That Yes, Jesus has come and he was born and he lived and he died and, and he was ascended, but we're waiting for him to come again. We still find ourselves in the same position again. We can take these songs now a whole new level of meaning. Understanding now that, that Jesus has come and yet he's going to come again and so we live in the same sort of anticipation that our savior will come from heaven again and he will complete and finalize the work that he's begun that what he has begun in us is a good good start and he will be faithful to complete it and he's going to come on that day when when he will finish once and for all the great work of redemption of making all things new of preparing his bride for himself he will come again and, and so we anticipate as well. We anticipate with, with great eagerness and great longing for the coming of Christ. And as we are preparing our hearts for Christmas, that is what we do. This is a season of anticipation and longing. These words in, in Zechariah are words of anticipation. He was a prophet over 500 years before Christ were he, he was ministering sometime around 520 B.C., over 500 years before, and yet he is telling the people to rejoice because the king is coming to them. To rejoice because their king is coming to them. And we remember there's a, a historical sense to that, and yet he speaks to us today and says, Believer in Christ, rejoice. Your king is coming to you. And so I want to take this in two steps. First, the command to rejoice. And second, the picture of our returning king. First, there's a command to rejoice. And, and second, there is a picture of our returning king. But first, rejoice. Rejoice. Look at verse 9. It starts with this command. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. He tells us to rejoice. It's not a suggestion. It's not just an invitation. He doesn't start with, in my humble opinion, we should rejoice. No, this is a command from the prophet of the Lord. Rejoice, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud. He's telling us to rejoice even though, here's what it is, it's to rejoice in the act of anticipation. 
rejoice in the act of anticipation because the prophet's announcing good news of one who is going to come but is not here yet. And yet he tells us to rejoice. He's calling them to rejoice now. He's not saying, daughter of Zion, your king is coming and on that day you will rejoice. He says, daughter of Zion, you rejoice because on that day your king comes to you. This is a rejoicing that's an act of faith. He's announcing good news and it's not complete yet. It's not even here. It's 500 years. It's generations will pass and yet he says, to rejoice now, you rejoice by faith in what you do not now see. You rejoice by faith in what you do not now see and that's the essence of Christmas, isn't it? That we are rejoicing in what we know Jesus has begun and yet it's not complete. We don't see it everywhere yet. But we rejoice today because your king is coming to us. Now, he says this because the prophets lived in a time very much like ours. And I think this explains part of why if you sit down to read the prophets, they're hard to read. Maybe you've tried it and maybe you've found that to be true, that they can be hard to read and they feel almost a little schizophrenic at times, don't they? You'll go for these long stretches of reading through the Old Testament where it's all these predictions and pronouncements of judgment on foreign nations and foreign kings and and woe unto them and and all of this stuff that's hard and difficult to plow through. And then there will be this, this brief little stretch of glorious verses that are familiar to us and that point us to Christ and we say, the glory is breaking through here, but then it goes back into the difficult parts. And, and here's the reason. It's because they lived in a world that was just like ours. They lived in a world that was severely broken by sin. They lived in a world where, where righteousness did not flourish on every street corner. It was no idyllic society. They lived in a broken society. If this is about 520 B.C., that means Israel has not had a king for 65, 70, 75 years. They've just returned from being in exile in Babylon where they were taken captive by their pagan neighbors, forced into slavery, unable to worship the covenant Lord, unable to offer sacrifices. There was no king. Everything they had, their temple had been burned. They lived in a difficult time. They lived in a a difficult time and they were surrounded by oppression and injustice and And they had no king. And every Israelite was wondering, when is the Lord going to restore the fortunes of his people? When is he going to look on us with his mercy and his grace? And and when is he going to come? When is he going to make everything better again? When is he going to act on behalf of his people? Because this is the world they lived in. And so the prophets sort of saw the world with with two eyes, as it were. On the one hand, they could look at the world around them with one eye and they could see the brokenness and they could see the oppression and the injustice and everything going wrong. And and in that sense, then they would write these passages denouncing sin and unrighteousness, pronouncing the judgment of the Lord on that. But But on the other hand, they also lived with one eye on heaven. And with one eye on heaven, they beheld by faith what God was doing in the world. And then they would write these glorious passages of great anticipation and longing, seeing Christ and pointing us to him and saying, look, God is faithful to his word. Because they lived in a society just like ours, just every bit as broken as ours. And so when he tells Israel to rejoice, your 
king is coming. He's not telling them to rejoice sort of with blinders on or rose-colored glasses as though, rejoice, everything's fine, everything's hunky-dory, just feel happy, just smile every once in a while. That's not what he's saying at all. That's not what he's saying. This is a rejoicing that is an act of faith. Despite the circumstances around them, that they were to look to the promises of God and to rejoice that his king was coming, even though they did not see it yet with their eyes. It's like with my own son, when there is an anticipated visit from grandma and grandpa, and we tell him, Judah, grandma and grandpa are coming in four weeks. He doesn't wait those four weeks and then begin to rejoice. He rejoices immediately. He rejoices out of, because he believes that what we have said to him is true. And he looks forward with such anticipation to that great day. It's almost present to him already. And it, it just bubbles out of him. And so it is the prophets are saying to us, rejoice. Your king is coming. And we don't wait until that day we begin to rejoice as an act of faith. Because we trust. We trust the word of God. We trust that all God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. This kind of rejoicing is, is possible only when the eye of faith is fixed firmly on Jesus. When the eye of faith is fed and nurtured by his word. As Hebrews says, we, we don't currently see everything in submission to Jesus. That's not what we see when we look around. But we see Jesus. We see him and our eye is fixed on him. And so we rejoice. You see, what's the alternative to that kind of rejoicing? There's the command throughout Scripture all over the place that we are to rejoice. The New Testament tells us rejoice always. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. It's commanding us to have that. And so what are we to do if we don't feel it today? How do you do it? Well, the alternative is we can go buy our rejoicing mask, right? And we, we put on our mask when it's necessary when we're going to church and, and we want to seem as though we have it all together. And so we put on this mask to say, yeah, we, we put on a front, but... It's not, it's not sincere. We don't feel that joy in our heart. We don't feel it in our spirit. Inside, you're despairing because all you see around you is the brokenness and the sin and the darkness, and you don't see any way out of that. But what Zechariah does is he's pointing us to the way out. You see, it's natural if you spend all your time with that one eye that's surveying the brokenness, of course you're going to feel despairing, but Zechariah points us to, way, to a way out when he says, Behold your king. Behold your king. There is a way to have authentic joy in the midst of brokenness. There is a way to have something more than just sort of a warmed-over Christmas sentimentality. See, isn't that what it, it often becomes, what it devolves into, is we just feel like we should feel happy because it's Christmas time. I remember one year, I think I was a teenager sometime in high school, my, I remember my mom complaining sometime in December and saying, you know, I just can't get into the Christmas spirit this year. I thought, oh, what, what do I need to do? Do I need to play more Christmas music on the radio? Do, do we need to bake more cookies? Do I, do I just need to behave better? That would probably help. But, but what Zachariah says is, behold your king. Look to Jesus as the source of joy for this. It all begins with Jesus. See, and it's the same for kids too, isn't it? For our young people who are here. Isn't it hard to rejoice sometimes? Isn't it hard to have joy when, when it seems like life is unfair, when you don't get your way, when things don't go 
the way that you think that they should go, or maybe you just get upset with your siblings, you get upset with your friends. It's just, we just get tempted to complain instead of rejoice. Do you ever feel that way? I do. (laughs) But you know what the Bible says to do to help us rejoice? It says, behold your king. You know what behold means? We don't say behold very much. It means look. Look at your king. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and rejoice. There's a great scene in in Tolkien's book, The Return of the King. The Return of the King where where it's out on on the plains of Pelennor. And and the the army of of the dark lord Sauron is attacking the city of Gondor, the last free city of Middle-earth, and he's attacking it, and and the men of the city are out doing their valiant best to defend the city, and yet it's not going well. They're losing, they're getting disheartened, and they're about to sound the the alarm of retreat, to retreat back inside the city. They can't hold the wall any longer, and so they're going to come in. And you remember, Gondor has not had a king for many years now. It's been ruled by stewards who've looked over the city, but there has not been a king. And so they're being led in this battle by Eomor of Rohim, Rohan, rather, and he's leading the charge. And, and at one point, they're about to retreat, and they see these ships out on the sea. They're coming actually down the river, and their first thought is that this is bad news. This is more of the bad guys who are coming. The bad guys have reinforcements, and now we're totally done for. And so Eomor comes, and he's about to just take his last stand and say, I'll just die in defense of the city. And he looks at these ships one more time and, and they unfurl a standard. They put out their flag. And it turns out to be the flag of the king of Gondor. It's this flag that no one has seen for generations because there has been no king. And yet he looks and that's the, that's the flag it is. It's the standard of the king who has come to them. It's Aragorn who has come out of the paths of the dead with all the reinforcements that he brings with him. And all of those men on the battlefield, you didn't have to tell them to rejoice at that point. They rejoiced. Their king was coming to them. He was coming to their aid to fight for them, and they rejoiced. You see, Zechariah, he has to tell the people to rejoice, and he has to tell us to rejoice. Because we don't see the king with our eyes yet. For us, it's an act of faith. It's an act of listening to the scripture and saying, yes, Jesus has come He's coming again. He is king. In his time, he will put everything back together. He will make everything right and renew all of creation, finishing his work, his great work of redemption that he has begun. And so he has to tell us, and we rejoice by faith, and and perhaps you feel like you're in that place where you're on the battlefield, where everything is broken, and you have not yet seen that flag unfurl. And Zechariah says, Look. Look what is there in the distance, what has just come into view. It's the flag of the king. He says, behold, your king is coming. And by faith we say, yes, and we see it. And it's not here yet, but we see it and we know he has come to renew, to make all things right. Your king is coming to you. And so he says to you, rejoice. He says to you, rejoice. That's the command. That's the exhortation. And now he goes on and and he describes the king. What's the character? What's the nature, the person and the work of the returning king of Jesus who he points us to? He describes now 
in, in verses 9 and 10, he describes the character of the king. Here's the reason to be glad. Here's the reason. First, he's king. He's king. We, it, that may seem obvious to say. We've said it already, but the first reason we rejoice is because Jesus is the king. He's the king. None, none of those people fighting for the city of Gondor would have rejoiced if there had just been one more guy who showed up to help. They needed more than that. Likewise, we would not have cause to rejoice if Jesus were not king. If he were just a good teacher, they say, well, we need a lot more than that. If he were just a moral example for us, we need a lot more than that. But Jesus comes as the king. He comes as the king of kings. He comes as one who has power and who has authority and whose word is absolute, who reigns over all things. And so we rejoice because the one who is coming is king. Verse 10 describes what his reign is like. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so it says he's a king in the character of his reign. It's a reign of peace and freedom. That there will now be joy. There won't be any more war. There won't be any more distress. There won't be any more brokenness. See, that was all Israel had known. If you read the first uh, eight verses of this chapter, it talks about the judgment on all the surrounding nations. And for those people who were alive in Zechariah's day, that was all they had known. Perhaps the very oldest had known the last king of Israel. But everyone only knew the oppression of foreign kings. And he he says, you will no longer be attacked. It will be a time of peace. He will speak peace to the nations. And don't we need that peace just as much today? Though it may not be a military peace that we feel the need of the most, it's a peace that he speaks to us, this word of of peace with God. That to us he speaks that we will be at peace once and for all and his reign shall be absolute because it goes from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zion's king will reign. First he's a king. Second it tells us He's righteous. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous. And having salvation is he. Now again, this would have been good news for everybody because no one had ever experienced anything like that before. No one had ever experienced life under a king who was righteous. In fact, they had been suffering greatly because their kings were not righteous. Psalm 73 is is a psalm that praises the character of a good and righteous king. And it's a psalm of praise for how good and pleasant it is to live under a king who is righteous, one who loves justice, one who protects the innocent, one who gives justice to the widow and the orphan and the sojourner, all those who are the marginalized in society, who have nobody, who are weak and at the mercy of others. He says the righteous king gives justice to them. In other words, the righteous king is a king like Jesus who is totally righteous and in that the people will rejoice. We see even more in Jesus, not only does he act with righteousness, he is in himself righteous. Jesus himself is righteous. uh, That's why it says he comes having salvation because he alone is righteous. He alone never sins. He alone is perfect and pure and holy in the eyes of God. And therefore it says, 
He is righteous and having salvation. He is a king and he is a savior. He is righteous, and what we learn in the New Testament is he comes to give his righteousness. To give his righteousness to us in order that we, too, might be saved. He's a king, and he's righteous, and he is humble. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And here is the true paradox of who Jesus is, that on the one hand, he's a king, that his coming is cause for great rejoicing and great confidence. He's righteous, he's reigning, he's a savior, but he's not the savior that we would have expected. He doesn't come with might. In this sense, he's, he's really not like Aragorn who comes sort of riding into victory on the wind with all these warriors to overcome by the strength of the sword and the strength of power. In fact, it says he comes mounted on a donkey, a beast of burden, this humble animal that, that is an animal of peace, not an animal of war in any sense. He comes in humility. He is a savior, but his salvation is totally unique. Not to conquer with power and might, but to serve with humility. As Mark says, he, he came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life, a ransom for many. Most of our kids memorize the catechism question, wherein consists Jesus' humiliation? His humiliation consisted in being born, and that in a lowly condition, being made under the law, undergoing the wrath of God in this life, the cursed death of the cross, being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. You see, these words that describe the humility of Jesus in this passage, that these are the most familiar words to us of these verses, are they not? Because these are the words that, that Matthew and John both quote in their gospel passages to describe Jesus as he comes to the end of his earthly life riding into Jerusalem. We call it the triumphal entry, which is sort of an ironic term. It's triumphal entry, and yet he's coming to die. He, he knows full well what he's coming into the city to do. And he's heralded as king, and they put the palm branches down before him, and they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and yet he's coming to die. He comes knowing exactly what he had to do. He's coming not to be served. He's coming to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And so this part right here, this is the greatest twist in this story. That this seems to be the point of the story of Jesus' life where he is at his, his worst, where his humility reaches its lowest point. Here where he looks the least kingly. Here where it looks like we have the least reason to rejoice. Here where it looks like now it's time to mourn because our king is going to his death. He's been overtaken by unbelievers who are putting him on the cross. And yet the ironic twist of the scriptures is that at that very moment, that's the greatest cause of rejoicing we have. That that was no accident in God's plan that Jesus would be a humble king who would give himself over to death on our behalf, but that was the plan from the very beginning, that in doing so, that was the way he would save his people. So Zechariah can point us to Jesus and say he's humble and mounted on a donkey, and that is the best part. See, who rejoices at a king like that? Who's going to come not with, on a great white stallion, but he's going to come in humility on a donkey. And yet he says this is the best part of the story, that Jesus is no king you've known before. He's a king of humility. He's a king who allows himself 
to trade places with his people. Where his people deserve to die, Jesus will die instead. And where Jesus deserves to live, he comes to give that life to us, to give his righteousness to his people and take his people's sin and brokenness and take that all onto himself and to bring it all onto his shoulders and, and to die with it on his shoulders to suffer the wrath of God in, in, as the punishment for our sin. All because he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him and gave him the name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the good news. That Jesus, your king, is coming to you. That he is a king and he's righteous in his humility. He comes as a humble king willing to give his life. You see, this is the reason that we can rejoice. This is what lifts up your head, O daughter of Jerusalem. This is what gives us hope in the midst of the chaos that so often is our lives, is that we see Jesus as a king who embraces humility. To know that he's a humble king, that he not only looks on you with pity, but he comes to take our distress on himself, to give us his righteousness. You see, we don't we don't truly understand the nature of Christmas until we see that whole picture of Jesus' life. That he's Savior who is born, Christ the Lord, and yet he's a king who comes in humility on a donkey. That's why this is such a, a well-known passage for us, such a prophecy that we're so familiar with. It's as, as Hebrews says, again in Hebrews chapter 2, he says, talking about how Jesus will put, or God will put everything in subjection to Jesus and he will rule over all things on that day. And then he says this, he says, uh, at present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. He says that's why Jesus will rule, he will be over all things. He says, you know what, at present we don't see that, do we? But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. That is, we see him who embraced humility. Namely, Jesus now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see, what it's saying to us there is we can rejoice. We can rejoice even now when we don't yet see everything in subjection to Jesus. That day will be a cause for rejoicing. And he says, by faith we rejoice now because that day is coming. Our rejoicing does not have to wait. It's an act of faith to say when we look at Jesus, that is all we need. As we prepare our hearts for Christmas this year, we will be so tempted every day to look at the world around us, to see everything that's wrong, everything that's ugly, everything that needs change and fixing. And yet Zechariah calls us to behold our King, to keep our eyes on Christ. And therefore, let your head be lifted up. Rejoice with great joy and great anticipation, for Jesus is the King. We pray together. Father, we rejoice in Christ. Lord, by your Spirit, help us to rejoice better. Help us to rejoice more. May our eyes be fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Lord, we ask 
that you will nurture our hearts this Christmas season, that you will nurture our hearts in the knowledge of the goodness of our King and His righteousness, especially in His humility, that in understanding Christ, we may grow in Christ-likeness. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Let's take our...